What's the biggest Red Sox storyline that's currently flying under the radar going into the season? You are Locked On Red Sox, your daily Boston Red Sox podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I want to welcome you back into the Locked On Red Sox podcast, and thank you so much for making Locked On Red Sox your first listen of every single day. I am your host, Jake Nazuski, and today I am joined by a very special guest and Red Sox beat writer for the Boston Globe, Alex Spear, and he answers some of the biggest questions going into the Red Sox season, such as could Brian Mata and Brandon Walter find a way to sneak on to the 26-man roster What's the biggest storyline that's flying under the radar currently going into the season and much, much more. Let's listen in to Alex and I's conversation now. One thing that, you know, a lot of fans are really curious about, you know, we've we've heard about, you know, the vibes. Are they good? Are they bad during spring training? A lot of question marks going into this season. But I was curious, you know, early on in spring training, what's your really what's your assessment of the Red Sox thus far going into opening day? Yeah, so just to be clear, like I was only around early uh, in camp. I was uh, I was down in Fort Myers, uh, kind of from mid around mid February to late February, um, and uh, you know, uh, I, as as one usually encounters, uh, there's generally good feelings being in the sunshine and being back together uh, after off seasons apart. Um, but uh, beyond that, I, I think that it would be. Um, you know, it's it's intriguing that they keep winning, even though I do think that that's a relatively meaningless uh, thing in spring. But, uh, you know, it uh, teams people generally feel better when there are handshakes at the end of uh, a couple of hours spent on the field than uh, than when there's just kind of a slouching back to a clubhouse. So um, it was fine. I, I don't think that there was anything um, I, I don't think that there was anything that particularly uh, differentiated it in a good or a bad way. Um, there have only been a couple of spring trainings that I've been around that were truly exceptional, uh, one of which was uh, in 2013, I think. Well, in 2005, that was the first one that was crazy. Uh, that one was when uh, every Red Sox player was being asked by by New York writers every day um, how much A-Rod sucked. And, uh, <laughs> and like literally it was uh, like the first three weeks of spring uh, featured nothing but that, um, as well as all of the kind of like chaos that followed winning the World Series in 2004. That was a weird spring training in which um, maybe the sense of uh, of collective purpose uh, that it existed in the previous couple of years wasn't quite as well defined after um, the ultimate thing that they had all been uh, chasing after was achieved. Um, the 2012 spring training was an absolute mess uh, when players were uh, completely distrustful of one another, completely distrustful of Bobby Valentine, uh, wondering what on earth was going on as a roster had been, you know, there had been uh, some elements of uh, of roster shakeup that had entered that year, uh, a whole lot of front office and uh, and coaching staff in managerial shakeup going into the season. And that was, that was just weird. Everyone walking around on pins and needles and that went famously. Um, and then 2013 was notable because of how extreme a departure it was from 2012, where like that one was, like people feeling good about being together and people enjoying each other's company with a lot of loud personalities um, that kind of played off of each other, uh, each other well. Um, and that was also the strange thing of like, you know, Jackie, Jackie Bradley Jr. Uh, being the greatest spring training player in history that <laughs> year, 
um, and kind of taking the world by storm. Um, and then I would say that the spring of 2020 was, um, and I'm, I'm not even talking about the COVID shutdown and when uh, everyone was kind of getting concerned about um, what on earth the world looks like, but the fact that that one started with the trade of Mookie Betts and David Price uh, and featured just an absolute enormous amount of turnover on the roster. Um, it started the process of a, of a major overhaul of the roster with a lot of unfamiliar faces. Uh, that one was also an exceptional spring training in which people weren't comfortable. But um, outside of that, uh, I, this one didn't really, like in the time when I was down there, it didn't register as exceptional in those ways. Yeah, I'm actually good friends with uh, Darno McDonald, and he told me about Adrian Gonzalez, like having to hit ground balls to, you know, the different fielders and everything like that. And they're like, what is happening? What is wrong with Bobby Valentine? And then Kevin, I heard a story from Kevin Euclid saying that they had snack time uh, during 2012. He's like, are we in preschool? Like, what is this? Uh, but, you know, we, we've, you know, heard some people, you know, trying to compare 2013 to this team with the personalities, sort of uh, the, the good clubhouse presence. Now, did you really feel that down there at all? Uh, this year or in 2013? This year. Uh, I, I didn't get enough of a sense of whether or not, like, I, you know, I was still there at a relatively early stage of the spring, but I would say that um, this spring is very different from 2013 uh, in that there were enormous forceful personalities that remained inside of the Red Sox clubhouse, chiefly, you know, Dustin Pedroia, who at the end of 2012 uh, played a game on the final day of the season with a broken finger and was yelling, screaming at everyone in the middle of this like God awful season that was miserable for everyone. We're changing the culture here. We're changing the culture, right? Like he was going bananas in game 162 of 2012 and was very determined. Like he's this presence, this huge presence um, who has like, who has kind of crazy cachet uh, with the team longstanding. And Ortiz, Ortiz was injured that spring, but he was also um, an enormous voice of a holdover. And then, uh, and then the, you know, and then you also had the just kind of drastic shift of, uh, of the loathed Bobby Valentine to the like you know to the like you know John Farrell who had like rainbows trailing behind him <laughs> in the eyes of the people around there so it was easier for some of the bigger voices to cut that were coming on board like the Johnny Gomes's and the David Rosses and Shane Victorinos right. uh to kind of um to kind of you know uh, to join in that this is a very different spring in that um in that the most you know the biggest presences in the clubhouse are gone. Kike Hernandez is someone who has a significant, who has over the last few years had a significant role in the clubhouse, but he's taking a different role than the one he's had, right? Whereas the Pedroia and Ortiz roles in 2013 were continuations. So I do think that this is, look, I think that there's been a generally positive, uh, there's been a generally positive um, outlook on the part of a number of, uh, on the part of a number of people. There's a shared sense of like, you know, no one believes in us, we believe in ourselves mm -hmm. type of thing. Um, but I, I think that the, the dynamic to compare it to 2013, like, which was, I, you know, in my, in, like to this point for me, um, close to a once in a career clubhouse. Um, I, I would say that's, that's a little bit of a, that, that would be a, I, I'm, I'm not ready to draw that conclusion at this point.
Right. And I think some of that comparison, I, I've, I've been faulted to do it a little bit myself, is delusional optimism of just trying to find any way possible to find some sort of positivity after such a negative offseason. And especially with, you know, all the different storylines, all the different question marks going into this season, you know, what, two words that Lauren and I have said throughout, you know, these past few months is what if in potential pretty much every single episode. And I'm curious from your vantage point, sort of, you know, looking at the question marks of not only the rotation, you know, the middle infield, everything that goes along with it. Is there one storyline in your mind that might be flying under the radar right now? A little bit difficult to say, given that, you know, given that I've been at home uh, for the last couple of weeks, but, you know, I, I think that honestly, like the centrality of, you know, Mustaka Yoshida was signed and then, you know, and then like you've kind of forgotten. And yet like there's this fascinating element where, uh, for all of the criticism that um, that the signing took, uh, every projection system, every statistical projection system um, that we rely upon to forecast performance seems to be in pretty good agreement that he has a chance to be a really, really good offensive player. So mm -hmm. I, I think that that's a major one, right? Like there is this question, there is this, there is at least a chance that he is a star offensive performer. Um, with, you know, potentially with bad defense, <laughs> that's to be determined, but, uh, you know, and without a lot of base running impact, but um, that's, that's kind of, that's going to go under the radar in some ways because he's not around and, right. um, <laughs> excuse me, and he's trying to kind of make sense and uh, of, of his new surroundings. But, you know, I think that like the other, most of the other major storylines, like are ones of everything is premised on upside, right? Like, in order for the Red Sox to be a contender, you need upside for players. You need players to hit on upside that's beyond their uh, their projections. So you need uh, either Rafael Devers morphing into like morphing into like center super, you know, kind of uh, kind of elite of elite type of superstar, or you need Chris Sale having a bounce back to All Star slash Cy Young form. Um, and how realistic is that? Or you need. Uh, earlier, I was, you know, like, or you need Tristan Casas to uh, come on and be like, you know, Pete Alonzo or something mm -hmm. like that um, as a rookie. So I, I think that it's all known. Uh, I, I think that what if is kind of a uh, is kind of a reasonable framing mechanism for this team because that's what it takes. It takes a it takes kind of what if as opposed to what is uh, in many ways. I hope that you are enjoying my conversation with Alex Spear, but I just want to take a second to talk to you about FanDuel. So the midway point of the NBA season is here, and now is the perfect time to download FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook, because new customers get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's bonus bets back if your first bet does not win. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Then you can bet on everything from money line to point scores and threes drained. You can even bet on Celtics, Bruins, they're super hot right now. You can even look into some of the futures regarding the Red Sox. But plus, FanDuel even lets you combine your bets for a chance at a bigger payout with same-game parlay. So don't miss the chance to get your no-sweat first bet up to $1,000 in bonus bets when you go to FanDuel.com slash LockedOn. That's FanDuel.com slash LockedOn to learn more. Make every moment more with FanDuel, the official sports betting partner of the NBA. Now let's get back into my conversation with Alex Spear.
And we're already starting to see those question marks semi be answered early on in spring training of the, you know, durability of this Red Sox rotation. You know, you see Whitlock, Bayo, Paxton go down early on, and who knows if they're even going to be ready for opening day. And, you know, we had one of our Twitter followers ask, you know, if, if they aren't ready for opening day, who would be the likely candidates to fill in those spots? Yeah, they love Cutter Crawford. Uh, I think that um, I, I think that they feel pretty strongly. First of all, you know, opening day, not the be all end all. That's kind of worth um, restating. The first couple of weeks of the season, you're able to, you know, you have a bunch of off days, and you'd be in April. You're going to be holding guys back anyway in terms of their innings loads. So that's not the, you know, they if if those guys are available uh, by mid to late April, then I don't think that that's viewed as being a, a terribly big. Um, impediment. But part of that is because they do have the confidence that they do in Cutter Crawford, who, uh, if you look at kind of that run that he had from beginning of July until about mid-August, um, who was the last Red Sox homegrown pitcher who you saw having a run like that in the starting rotation where he was, you know, I think that he had eight over an eight-start span. He faced seven teams that ultimately made the playoffs. And of in like over that eight-start span, where he's averaging more than five innings and outing, uh, he had an ERA in the low threes with great strikeout to walk numbers. Like he showed terrific competitiveness and the ability to adapt an arsenal to a game plan against really good teams. So I think that um, that's kind of the beyond the seven identified starters that uh, everyone is at seven starters, seven starters. I always thought that, you know, that Cutter Crawford's default was going to be Triple A Worcester, but I think that they viewed him as being a big league ready, they view him as being a big league ready starter. Um, who they don't mind going to. Uh, and so him along with, you know, Sale, Kluber, uh, Sale, Kluber, Hauk, and, uh, and Pavetta to open the season seems like um, a fairly likely alignment, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, his, his name has been one that has been most talked about to fill in that spot. Josh Winkowski, another guy who be who could be a possibility as well. But, you know, two other pitchers who who have been, you know, sort of the talk of spring training thus far, and, and one of them who's going to be going against Puerto Rico today is Brandon Walter and, and Brian Mata as well. And I, I'm curious from, from what you see, in my mind, I think that they still need a little bit more time in AAA, especially, you know, with Walter having the next strain to end the season, Mata overcoming, you know, Tommy John surgery. But could you see them find a way to sneak on the 26-man roster? I would view it as unlikely for both of them to open the season um, because they need to build up, right? Like there's, uh, if if those guys had both been coming off of uh, a season or two of 100, 120 minor league innings, if they had, you know, if they had Chris Murphy's track, then mm -hmm. you would consider them, uh, you would consider them uh, kind of positioning themselves as performers at the beginning of the year. But uh, But you, with both of those guys, I think that they they are proceeding carefully. You know, this is Mata's first healthy spring um, since 2020, and right. uh, and that one was not even a full spring. So um, I, I think that they really, really want to let him develop in uh, in AAA uh, over the course of you know we'll see how long. But I, I think that he's you know he's going to position himself as a pitcher of interest, and whether or not that's in the rotation of the bullpen, I'm not sure yet. Um, but Certainly, you know, the the ease of getting to power stuff is noteworthy, although he doesn't get swings and misses with mid to high 90s. So mm -hmm. um, that's also worth noting. And he really has to be on his game with his secondaries. Uh, Walter is it looks a lot healthier than he did at any point last year. He's been working at 91 to 93, whereas last spring I saw him and I've been uh, very intrigued to see him, you know, on the backfields. And he was working at 88 to 90, maybe touching a 91 then. And it was like, oh, that's different. He was still looking great on the backfields. 
against minor league competition, but the velocity was down from the beginning of spring training, whereas this year he's well ahead of where he was at any point physically in the 2022 season. Especially with all the young talent that the Sox do have, it's really easy for fans to get excited and a little bit overzealous about wanting these guys see these guys on a regular basis playing in Boston. And Manuel Valdez is another player who has really caught a lot of eyes from fans. And one of our followers, uh, Ken Mateus, he said, could Valdez have a chance to make the Red Sox roster as well? It's a kind of never say never uh, trajectory, but I think mm-hmm. that the odds are stacked against him unless barring an injury to like, you know, if Arroyo gets injured, uh, or if like, or if Kike were to be injured, one of those two regular middle infielders, then it might be a consideration. But as a backup option, you don't want a player at his career point to be uh, to be kind of getting part time work um, in the in a backup role. And he also lacks the defensive versatility that you would ideally want from a uh, from a bench contributor. Um, so I think that there's a reason why they re-signed Yu Chang, um, and I think that there's a pretty good chance that he would be ahead of Valdez on the depth chart, but. Um, certainly, you know, I think that Valdez has been nothing but impressive in his offensive approach, granted in the earliest days of spring, like which are the worst, worst, worst for evaluating hitters, because the only question is, like, is, is your bat ready for fastballs or for, you know, no one is pitching to game plans at this point. Uh, pitchers aren't really trying to command so much as they're trying to build arm strength at this point. So uh, the first couple of weeks of spring until you get to, you know, the latter half of March tend to be a terrible time to um, start evaluating uh, where hitters are at. That makes sense. And, you know, this this year compared to others, I I, I see a lot more openings in the Red Sox roster, you know, for, from, you know, Romel Tapia, you know, Jorge Alforo, the, the ability to be able to make the roster co- signing on a minor league deal. And, you know, we, we have PD43. He said, other than, you know, a backup catcher and ref Schneider, who will be the two other reserves when the start when the regular season starts? Yeah, I think that you're looking. So let's assume that Justin Turner, hopefully, fingers crossed, right? That was a horrific moment. But um, for so many reasons, like, you know, it would be great to see him not slowed in his progression uh, mm-hmm. towards the season. Keep those chiclets. Um, so <laughs> I think that you're looking at a bench of to open the season of Alfaro, Ref Snyder, um, Chang. And, uh, you know, my my guess would be Tapia over uh, over Jaron Duran. But I think that that could, you know, that could go. Uh, in a different direction, but that would be, um, you know, as things stand, as we talk in early March, that would be my kind of default presumption. And now like six guys are going to get injured, so it'll be all shaken up. I, th- I think the March 25th date as well is really important as well, you know, with, with the causes for Tapia as well as Alfaro on, on if the Sox will, you know, ultimately add them to the 40-man roster or if, you know, another team could potentially, you know, pick them up. And, you know, what one thing that we've seen early on is, is seeing, you know, not only the Red Sox, but different teams adapting to the new rules. And, you know, especially with how, you know, the pitch clock violation ultimately uh, had, had a game end, you know, on a strikeout. That, that was definitely uh, an interesting way to start off, you know, spring training with with the new pitch clock but you know we, we saw Chris Sale struggle with it a little bit Tanner Houck struggle with it a little bit you know two days ago and I'm curious from from what you've seen or heard from how the coaching staff is helping these players get comfortable with the new rules specifically the pitch clock yeah well I mean there have been clocks all over the backfields and uh and like they are everything this spring once they got there it wasn't like it was going they were going to say okay this will be cool like we'll check it out in games um everything of every bullpen session every live batting practice session uh, has been with a clock in mm-hmm. in sight of uh, of pitchers and hitters um, in order to get everyone used to kind of paying attention to uh, to this different framework in which uh, you have to uh, you have to get the ball and go or you have to get in the box and be ready. Um, and I think that you know it's not a seamless adaptation, but 
Um, you know, I, I don't know. Like, I went to a bunch of minor league games uh, last year, and you know, and all that I I would show up at a park, and everyone, you know, and this isn't necessarily uniform personnel, but everyone in the park would be like, "Have you been to a game with the pitch clock yet? It's so fast, it's so good." Like, people love it from a fan and spectating standpoint, and I think that you know, as it, the the number of violations of it uh, dwindled to the point where like it was almost irrelevant. Like I would not be paying like my eyes were not affixed after you know after the first couple of innings of a game of a minor league game towards the end of the year to the pitch clock because it just wasn't a relevant consideration. Like pitchers were working faster um, than the clock required them to. And it was interesting to see uh, Ryan Fitzgerald's tweet speaking about that that he feels like the pitch clock is a little bit faster from the minors because I I saw it you know, two years ago in new, with the New Hampshire Fish Cats and then last year, obviously, with the Woo Sox. And I, I feel like it's a little bit faster just from, you know, the the videos that I've seen of, you know, I remember seeing a 20-second strikeout. Couldn't believe that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's different. Like, we're seeing a bunch of two-and-a-half-hour games in the spring. Um, yeah. the, the pace of it is, uh, the, the pace of it is different. I, I think that it is, I think that the level of vigilance that umpires have been instructed to enforce it with is different than it was in the minors, uh, even last year. You know, that like they they decide that Major League Baseball was tinkering with the idea, okay, do we kind of like ease into it and let people get used to it for a little mm -hmm. while? And they said, no, we're going to, <laughs> we are going to start out with like, you know, with like sirens blaring as yeah. soon as anyone starts violating this stuff because, you know, like you don't want to have guys easing into it you want them yeah. to be ready come opening day for there to be as few mistakes as possible right. uh, regarding this new way of playing baseball i'm laughing because it just makes me think of uh the foreign substance and you know sergio romo taking his pants off and you know max scherzer like just taking taking his jersey off and everything like that but i get it you know they got to force it immediately to to help not only you know fans you know coaches but also players to ultimately get used to it but you know one one thing that i was really intrigued about is you know one of our twitter twitter followers uh march mazinus she she said what's the best part of being a beat writer why and what's the worst part and why uh the best part of it is getting to learn stuff finding out stuff that uh being able being in a position to ask questions or see things um that make me go oh i didn't know that um mm -hmm. and uh that opportunity on a regular basis um you know whether it's through conversations with players whether it's conversations uh, through other beat writers, conversations with front office members, or just being able to see the field, like especially at spring training, as at the the time of year spring training where you get um, this incredible vantage point, one that's shared with any fans who are in spring training facilities. But this incredible proximity to the game, where you're only you know a few feet away from the action, rather than um, kind of being at the uh, at the remove of uh, of the press box, is fantastic. Um, yeah, and uh, people are also relatively unguarded. Thus, uh, at this time of year. Um, about kind of their themselves, right? Like, so mm -hmm. you can find out about people and learn about people. That's, I, I think that that's the fun of it, right? Like the opportunity to be surprised and to learn and to, um, and to enjoy things that are different. Um, mm -hmm. That's that's what's good about the beat. You're, you're on it day after day after day after day. So you're looking for the things that change, not the ones that are necessarily the same over and over and over. That would be kind of lame. Um, and the worst part is, uh, I guess that um, twofold, uh, the amount of time that I spend away from my family is uh, is at the top of the list. Um, and, you know, I I have a 12-year-old son and a nine-year-old son, and, uh, and a lot falls on my wife with, um, you know, with their day-to-day -day existences, and I feel like a bad parent sometimes. Uh, so that that's pretty high on the list. 
um, of things that aren't great about the beat along with, um, you know, it's, it's tiring. Like the, the days start as soon as if I'm, if, if I'm, if the Red Sox are at home and I'm covering a home game, like the workday starts almost as, as quickly as uh, my sons are, you know, walk through the school door and, uh, and it finishes after midnight. And that's, uh, you know, that can be tiring, but it can also, there's also moments of exhilaration uh, in the middle of that. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, Lauren and I talk about a lot on this podcast is, you know, the work-life balance of, you know, the sports industry, you know, one thing that we like to do everywhere. It's not just the sports industry, right? Like we like, it's hard, like it's hard. We have like, it's, it's way too easy to engage your work. Like, you know, your work follows you in your pocket and Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's just made it hard to, uh, to be a healthy human being Um, harder than it's in, in some ways, um, in some ways harder than it's than it's been in other eras but in other ways it's far easier to be healthy uh than it has been in other eras and we shouldn't take that for granted either couldn't agree more and you know one last thing for you it's especially you know early on in in spring training it's easy to get highs and lows and especially you know with with overall boston fans you know if if one if one loss happens oh my god it's the end of the world the season's over if one win happens oh my god we're going to the world series and especially with this team you know i I feel like fans are just trying to keep the vibes as high as possible you know especially with as i mentioned before how negative the offseason was so you know from your vantage point with, with how you see this team currently how do you think, you know, Red Sox fans should, or what mindset do you think that they should have going into the season? Uh, I, I think, you know, I, I guess um, if, I, I suppose it depends on, I, I would never prescribe what someone's mindset should be. Uh, I, I think that, you know, as a fan, like, you know, I think back to my own experience as a fan where I, I grew up in the DC area following the, uh, following the Orioles who were generally wretched while I was growing up. Like the first year I ever followed baseball, they won the World Series. But then they were a bad team for most of the years after that, before I went off to college. Um, and, you know, I nonetheless like, you know, that, you know, the the sense of open mindedness to uh, exactly the question that you're talking about, the what if, like, mm-hmm. if you're, I, I guess, like, what fun is, what fun is it to follow a team uh, if you are simply going to uh, spend all of your time dwelling on worst case scenarios? I, I guess that there, um, there is satisfaction and expertise. Uh, if you think about like a cultural critic like Theodore Adorno uh, of the, you know, of about a hundred years ago, like he always talked about the, um, he, he would write about, uh, about the, the sports spectators being uh, able to maintain critical distance um, in a way from, from theater performances and from spectacle uh, in a way that allowed them to criticize. So that's a, that's a cool way to enjoy, you know, to enjoy sports, but at the same time, like the, I think that the, you know, with sports specifically, um, what you what people generally want to see is transcendence and mm-hmm. uh, and the opportunity for um, for surprises usually in mm-hmm. a positive direction. Um, so if you're a fan of, if you're a fan of the Red Sox, and my job isn't to be a fan, my my job is just to document them. So right. uh, I'm in a different boat. But if you're a fan of the Red Sox, like you know what you look for is like you know is the sense of possibility and the idea of like you know oh what if I do get to like you know exactly what you say like. What if it's what if Chris Sale is suddenly like unleashing like 90, mm-hmm. 97, 98 miles an hour climbing the ladder um, with that delivery from hell uh, for uh, for left handed hitters? And, you know, um, what would it look like if Tristan Cassis is the kind of player that people believe he can be like, you know, it's it's right. uh, and then just being open minded to surprise is kind of the is kind of an interesting and uh, generally more enjoyable way of going through life. 
Yeah, I think that's the perfect way to look at it. And how, how I'm going into it is don't get too high on the highs and don't get too low on the lows. Because, you know, even back in, you know, 2021, going into the All-Star break, the Sox had the best record in baseball. And then, you know, we, we obviously know what ended up, you know, happened in August with, with the COVID-19 outbreak. And then you know, even, even last year, you know, June, they were unreal. And then, you know, the injuries just ended up crippling them but uh i'm really curious to see ultimately how it all plays out but uh really appreciate you taking the time alex and for anybody that wants to you know check out your articles check, check out your twitter uh, and see all the amazing work that you do how can they see that uh well uh i'm i write for the boston globe so uh you know the boston globe's uh sports section uh online is uh, is a great way to do so and uh, i'm at alex spear so pretty straightforward twitter handle that has no inventiveness whatsoever Awesome. Really appreciate it, Alex. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Jake. I hope that you did enjoy my conversation with Alex Beer and got some of the questions that you might have had going into this episode answered by him. And even if you have some more, make sure to let us know over on Twitter because we're going to be speaking with RedSoxMLB.com writer Ian Brown tomorrow. So make sure to tweet us over there when I ultimately make a tweet saying, what questions do you have or what topics do you want me to talk to Ian about? I'll make sure to include those in tomorrow's episode. But we're going to continue to be bringing on tons of different guests leading into the season to help you not only stay updated about the Boston Red Sox, but also to help you be as knowledgeable as possible regarding the team. So if you have not yet, make sure to subscribe over on YouTube or whatever audio platform that you listen to. Also, as I mentioned, Make sure to follow us over on Twitter. It's LO underscore Red Sox. Myself, it's at Jake Iggy. And also my co-host, Lauren. It's La La La. Three laws, Lauren with four R's. But buckle up, like I said, and get excited for another great interview with Red Sox writer from MLB.com, Ian Brown, tomorrow. So tune in to tomorrow's episode to check out that. But as always, we greatly appreciate everybody tuning in. I hope that you have a great rest of your day. And we'll end it how we always end it. Keep the faith and let's go socks. Peace.